a foolish man built his house upon the sand. And of course, the rock being the Word of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, He is the rock, His work is perfect, Deuteronomy chapter 32. The foolish man building it upon the sand. And when the storm comes, doctrinally, the tribulation period, for you and for me, any storm, you're going to weather the storms of life better with your foundation in the Word of God than you will in uh, anything else on this planet. We saw over again in Matthew chapter 25, uh, we talked about this on Monday night on those 10 questions. It talks about 10 virgins, five were wise and five were foolish, and how that that is a picture of the same wise men and foolish people. That's a tribulation context and what's going on. And so we see that all through here. In Proverbs, we also have found a wicked, evil man. And we know that in a general, practical sense, that's any unsaved man that is wicked and evil. But in the context, doctrinally, it'll always be the Antichrist. And you'll find that as he plays out through it. You'll also find a strange woman. And again, in life, <laughs> are some strange women. <laughs> but, but in doctrinally, it's dealing with the religious whore, the religion of the Babylon mystery religion uh, that's found uh, in, uh, throughout the Old Testament and within the tribulation period. You know, every great story in the Bible, every great illustration in the Bible will have a story that really illustrates it in great depth. And when you want to talk about the Antichrist and his female deity or the religion, like Proverbs talks about the evil man, Antichrist and a strange woman, his religion, female deity, you'll find a place like in 1 Kings chapter 18 and 19 with a story of Ahab and Jezebel. Ahab, Ahab is one of the 18 types of the Antichrist in the Old Testament. Jezebel is a religious prophetess. She's a picture of the religion of the Antichrist. And they go up against Elijah, who is the prophet of God. And all of that in there is a picture, doctrinally, of what's going to take place in the tribulation period. So doctrinally, all of this material will be primarily will fit into the time that the nation of Israel goes through the tribulation period. And I want you to understand that. Because we're going to come back and forth today. For me to be able to teach you the book of Proverbs, I've got to be able to blend it back and forth to show you. Because there's things that I want you to see doctrinally, and there's things that I want you to see in principle form uh, from the practical aspect of the Word of God. So I will always tell you when I'm shifting gears so you know. Most of you will pick up on it because you've been around long enough. But uh, for those of you that are new to this, I always tell you when I'm going to do that, and I'll do so today. But today, even though doctrinally we understand this, I want to talk to you about five great principles of life. We have been dealing in Proverbs and cataloging principles. Principles in the Word of God are the key to your Christian life. And they probably are the, the most intensive thing that you'll ever try to put into your life. Where you can, you can go through uh, you know, a set of lessons on discipleship, one or two, and get all the material. You can't do that with principles. Principles have to be dealt with as you learn them and as you use them. And so I want to show you five more. And many of you have been putting them in your book as you go through and keeping your list of principles and promises. And uh, here are five more uh, to add to, to your collection. And, uh, you know, our church is based on principles. It really is. And uh, I think that you ought to have a principle as a child of God behind everything that you do. I think that if you make a decision in life, whether no matter what it may be, I think that you need to do that based on a principle. When I deal with people, it's based on principles. Uh, you know, a lot of people you're going to work with in ministry won't like your, your style of dealing with them in the Bible. 
And that's okay as long as at the end of the day, if it ever comes down to a meeting, which it won't, but if it ever comes down to a meeting, you simply say, here are the principles by which I did what I did. Uh, principles are the end of the line. And in everything in our life needs to be governed by the principles of the Word of God. The circumstances and the situations uh, in, in life all come through the Word of God. And as I said last week, principles come in, in categories. Uh, this is why it makes them so hard. It has to be a systematic system. You know, for every issue of life that you have that you're going to deal with with somebody's problems, they're all going to be different. And you've got to understand how that the principles fall into the particular categories for that particular set of problems. And that takes some time. That takes some time by learning the principles as I lay them out to you and uh, then using the principles. And we'll talk more about that here in, in, in a little bit. Now we can take all this material and it will form for us a, a practical and our inspirational application of what it means to us. And as I said, my son in Proverbs, inspirationally, will be our instructions from God. You and me as a Christian. It'll be our instructions from God to handle life the way that God wants it to handle. And uh, you'll find that in that sense, the evil man will be the world system which is run by the devil. You'll find that the strange woman will be the religious systems that's in our world, which are also run by the devil. And there's a marriage between the devil and religion. We know that from, from uh, the Bible itself. And last week, remember, we looked at verses 6 and 7 in Proverbs chapter 21, and we talked about how that getting treasure by a lying tongue is vanity. And then we talked about that the robbery of the wicked would destroy them. We talked about somebody lying to somebody about the Bible, and then somebody who had the Bible, somebody robbing them of that and taking it from them. Now, that's the inspirational application. I didn't get into this last week, but I want you to understand uh, how this fits doctrinally. And of course, we know from our studies in the Bible that the, uh, the, uh, the Antichrist religion uh, in the tribulation period will be nothing more than the Roman Catholic Church and the Roman Catholicism of the time that we're in now. We know that for because of the Old Testament Baal worship in the Old Testament. It's nothing more than a, a, a basic form of what we have in Roman Catholicism today. That's very easily substantiated through the Bible. And these verses talk about somebody getting treasure by a lying tongue. If you ever get a chance to collect any of the books written by a guy by the name of Avril Manhattan, he's dead now. He was a British guy. Avril Manhattan was probably the foremost authority on the Roman Catholic Church in all of the history of the world, probably. Uh, he was an incredible guy. And he wrote some material uh, books. Uh, they're out of print now, and they're really expensive. You found them online, they're probably $70, $80 per book because they're so hard to get. But he, uh, we have a couple of them in the bookstore back there. He's the one that wrote the, uh, uh, all of the volumes on it. And he wrote one book called Vatican Billions, where he actually goes through and documents the net worth of the Roman Catholic Church. And he wrote this probably 30 years ago. And 30 years ago, the net worth of the Roman Catholic Church was over $100 billion. It was incredible. And uh, when you consider, as he did in there, all of the artifacts and the artwork that they have, their artwork alone is worth millions of dollars. And, of course, all of the artifacts and all of the property they own, all the buildings they own. Uh, and then you get into the, the holdings the Vatican Bank uh, invests in. 
They owned most of the steel companies when they were in there. They owned uh, shares of the Miller Brewing Company, if you can believe that. They, 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 have, they are the richest religion on the planet. So when he's talking about this, he's talking about how that when the Antichrist comes to power in the tribulation period, uh, it, will be the, it will be the most powerful, greatest, richest religion on the planet that it has ever seen. And it will come out of the Roman Catholic Church. Take your Bibles and turn with me over to Revelation chapter 18. I want to show you something here. And I think I always thought this was very instructive. If you don't have this marked in your Bible, you ought to mark it in your Bible. Revelation chapter 18. Now, in Revelation chapter 17 and 18, you have a detailed description of the Antichrist religion, Babylon, Mr. Religion, the mother of harlots. And he details out everything about her in these two chapters. But I want to show you here, he takes the time to lay out for you and for me (coughs) the priorities of the religion of the Antichrist. And it shows you how that, that her desire is for riches. And this is why she is the richest, richest religion on the planet. And what follows here by the Holy Spirit of God in Revelation chapter 18, uh, picking it up around verse 11 or 12, we'll see here in a second, is the, the order of importance of things uh, to the Antichrist religion. Now I want to read, if you don't have this marked in your Bible, it's really worth marking in here. Okay, look at verse 11, uh, verse 10. Standing afar off for the fear of her torment, saying, Alas, alas, that great city, Babylon, that mighty city, for in one hour thy judgment is come. And of course, that judgment is the second coming of Christ. And the merchants of the earth shall weep and mourn over her, for no man buyeth her merchandise anymore. She, she was involved worldwide in making money and in merchants and everything that goes on. Now watch this. Now, in verse 12 and 13, he begins to show you the order of the importance of the Antichrist religion. The merchandise of gold. I want you to notice that gold is number one. The merchandise of gold and silver and precious stones and of pearls and of fine linen and purple and silk and scarlet and all thion wood and all manner of vessels of ivory and all manner of vessels of most precious wood and of brass and iron and marble and cinnamon, and odors, and ointments, and frankincense, and wine, and oil, and fine flour, and wheat, and beast, and sheep, and horses, and chariots, and slaves. Last thing, the souls of men. You see, the first thing she's interested in is gold, silver, precious stones, (coughs) and all the wealth of the world. The last thing she cares about is the souls of men. And that's an incredible (coughs) commentary on, on that religious system as we find it today and as we find it uh, throughout the history. Now today, with that little introduction there, uh, we'll begin to move through a couple of verses here. And I want to show you five great principles. <clears throat> and I'm going to come back and forth on the doctrinal, and I'll tell you when, so, because there's some things I want you to get in your Bible today if you're a Bible student. And I want to give you five principles on the issues of life on <clears throat> planet Earth. Now let's look at verse 8. The way of man is froward and strange, but for the pure his work is perfect. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus, and we do love you today. We thank you for all you do for us, for, your, for the Word of God you provided for us, for your love, for your mercy, for your grace. 
We ask you now, Father, to take this time and to use it for your honor and glory. Uh, strengthen us and give us what we need today. And <clears throat> we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. For our sake we ask it. Amen. Now, doctrinally, as we've already talked about, where it says the way of man is forward and strained, we know that now is the Antichrist. We know that. And, uh, and, uh, and, and the pure, of course, would be the Lord Jesus Christ or uh, the work of God. <coughs> and what you have here <coughs> is a contrast between the Antichrist work, which is evil, and God's work, which is perfect and pure. That's what you have here. And we know that from Proverbs chapter 20, verse 9, that this can't be just a reference to man. Because the Bible says in Proverbs 20, verse 9, <clears throat> who can say I have made my heart clean and I am pure from my sin? And in the Old Testament, nobody could say that because Christ hadn't come and died yet. So we know that it has to be talking about something more specific. Verse 8 is contrasting, as I said, the work of the Antichrist and his crowd <clears throat> up against the perfect word of God in the tribulation and the people that are doing the work for him. And what he's saying is that this is the way of the Antichrist and the unsaved man will be a strange thing to God. The way that the Antichrist operate will be completely and completely out of the realm of God's, uh, the way God would do something. And uh, you want to follow the word, if you have some time, sometime you want to, through the book of Proverbs, you want to follow the word strange through Proverbs. And you'll see how it comes out. <clears throat> you'll find in Proverbs 2.16, Proverbs 5.3, Proverbs 6.24, Proverbs 7.5, uh, Proverbs 20, verse 16, Proverbs 22.14, Proverbs 23.27, Proverbs 23.37, and Proverbs 27.13. Nine times in the book of Proverbs, you'll find the word strange, and every time you find it, it'll be connected with this woman, who is a picture of the religion of the Antichrist. Nine times. And it shows us <clears throat> that the religious system of the Antichrist alongside the Word of God, is a strange thing to God. That's what it's showing you. Along with that, you'll want to put in there, if you're going to put these in your Bible, Psalms 81.9, which talks about Israel going after strange gods. You'll find in Psalms 137, verse uh, 4, uh, it says, uh, Sing a song of Zion. How can we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? Uh, now, that's dealing with the when Israel is down in the uh, in the captivity of Babylon. And the Bible says in that verse, they're sitting down there, <clears throat> they've been taken away captive, Babylon's in control, they've lost everything, they've lost God, they've lost their city, they've lost everything about them. Many of their family members are dead, they're scattered and they're split up, they're sitting down there by the river Shebar, Ezekiel chapter 1, and the the captives, the Babylonians come over and they know about God and they know about the, uh, uh, the nation of Israel and so they're kind of making fun of them. And they'll come over and they'll say, why don't you sing us one of the songs of Zion? You know what their answer is? How do I sing a song of Zion in a strange land? You know, that's why some of you can't sing with the Lord in your heart this morning. That's why some of you don't have the joy, joy, joy down in your heart this morning. It's tough to sing about the Lord Jesus Christ when you're in the far country, Amen. when you're down in a strange land, when you're out of fellowship with God. You know, you, how you know when you get out of fellowship with God, the things of God just lose their luster for a second of time. It's not important anymore. 
you come to church and you all get fired up, you know. I don't know about you, but the average Christian that's right with God, uh, when you get up on Sunday morning, here's how it ought to work. Here's how, just how it works for me. I wake up about 5.30, and for a few moments, I don't know what day it is. <laughs> I'll think it, maybe it's Saturday. I'll think maybe it's Monday, and then it'll hit me. It's Sunday. And all of them, all, 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 everything starts rolling together. It's Sunday. And I get anticipation. Oh, boy, Sunday. I'm going to get to see all the people. We're going to have a great song service. We're going to have fun. You know, I get to talk about the Iron Man competition. I get to meet all my buddies and see all my friends and hear all the stories about what God's doing in your life. And I'll get up. And I'll go down and get my dogs out, Buddy and Daisy. And I'll say, today's Sunday. We're going to have a great day. They look up and don't know what I'm talking about. And I take them out. And uh, they seem to go to the bathroom quicker on Sunday. I think they know that I've got anticipation about getting to church on Sunday. They want to make things easier for me. So I take them out, come back, and I go upstairs, and I, you know, and I look over my sermon, get it one last time, you know, and I, I'm anticipated about it. I'm going to be here. We're going to open up the Bible together. We're going to preach. We're going to have a great time. We're going to talk about the things of God, and, and it's going to be a wonderful time. And I'm just, and I, so I go up, and then I get a shower, and I get dressed, and I got anticipation. You know, by the end of the time I get in my truck and start over here, I'm just slobbering with anticipation. That's how you ought to be. But I'm, most of God's people, they roll over, you know, and if the hangover from last night doesn't keep them from church, you know, uh, that uh, it's a thing where they, uh, uh, you know, they roll over there and, oh, I've got 15 more minutes to sleep, you know, and they hit the snooze alarm, you know, and they'll get up and they'll say, oh, i, I got to go to church this morning. You know, that's a tough thing when you say, i got to go to church in the morning. You ought to want to be here. And, you know, I know why you're here when you don't want to be, because, you know, Bob's going to ask you where you were on Sunday. I won't ask anymore. You know, I saw a T-shirt the other day that I was going to sell in a bookstore. It just said on the front, big letter, don't ask. Just get one of those. I won't ask. I mean, I love you and I want you to be here, but you know what? You ought to just be excited about being here. When you get up on that Sunday morning, you think about church, boy. But it's tough to be excited about the things of God when you're in a strange land. I get it. I get it. I get it. Look at verse 9. Now, here's a great one. It's better to dwell in a corner of a housetop than with a brawling woman in a wide house. Well, I don't need to make any comments on that one, Ed. <clears throat> or a wide woman in a small house. It doesn't matter. <clears throat> That's my two cents. <clears throat> Now, this verse is a classic. It really is a classic. And, uh, and most Christians, most pastors, they couldn't explain this verse if their life depended on it. So what has happened, and I've noticed this over the years, <clears throat> when you have something in the Bible that we don't understand or we don't know, it seems to spawn thousands of jokes. And the jokes on this verse are just endless. And I remember one time a guy wrote a book of all the jokes on this verse. There were like 200 of them in there. And people do that. When you don't know how to expound it biblically, you've got to make, get around it somehow. So you just make a joke and everybody laughs and forget you don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> and it, it, they're endless. Guy said one time, we had to postpone our lodge meeting last night down at the lodge. His buddy said, oh, really? Why is that? He said, well, the grand, all-powerful, 
invincible, most high, supreme, unquestionable potentate, got beat up by his wife. Had to cancel it. Guy said, does your wife ever miss you? He says, no, she throws remarkably straight for a woman. God said to his friend, what did your wife say when you came home drunk last night? You want me to leave out the cuss words? Please do. He didn't say anything. <laughs> Judge said in divorce court, sir, what explanation do you have for not speaking to your wife for the last five years? He looked up and said, your honor, I didn't want to interrupt her. Guy says, I never take my troubles home with me from the office. His buddy replied, I don't either. She's always waiting for me when I get there. On and on it goes. And, and allow me to put the stupid jokes aside for a moment even though you'll be telling them all week at the office and taking credit for them. This is much better than what you get from Joe Olstein in the morning. I want you to know that. But allow me for a moment to put the stupid jokes aside on, and really talk about for a moment the greatest gift that outside of salvation that God ever gave a man, and that is his help meet. I mean, let's just be honest here. The Bible says in Proverbs 18.22, He that findeth a wife findeth a good thing. And, and let's look at what we really got instead of masking our inability to lay it out by some bad jokes. Let me explain what's going on here. And you want to get this in your Bible. Now, I know the moment I said it, you all amen and went crazy. I get that. So you understand the practical, so I ain't even going to go there. Uh, my hole's already dug deep enough. I'm not going to get it any farther. But let me explain what you got, doctor. This is very important. In the tribulation period, <clears throat> we know that the tribulation period lasts seven years. Based on Daniel chapter 9, and somebody asked a question here a couple of weeks ago on a Thursday night, we know that, uh, that uh, the time period uh, from uh, uh, the rebuilding of the temple <coughs> up to the uh, coming of Christ is to be uh, 490 years. In the story there in Daniel chapter 9, it's the uh, each uh, each year is seven years, uh, so it's 490 years, and it, it's called Daniel's 70th week. In other words, it was 70 weeks or 490 years by the formula for when they gave the decree to go back to Jerusalem, and that would be Ezra and Nehemiah, up to the coming of Christ. When we get up to the crucifixion of Christ, that's 69 weeks. It's only one week left. And the Bible tells us that at the 69th week, the Messiah was cut off. He was crucified. So now, because of Israel's rejection, we have one week left or seven years left, and that will be the tribulation period. Tribulation period is many times called Daniel's 70th week. It fulfills those 70 weeks. The gap between crucifixion and the 70th week will be the church age, just so you know. So we've got one week left, seven years, to fulfill Daniel's 70th weeks, and that'll be the seven years of the tribulation period. So we know, that, uh, we know that that is what is going to take place. So the first three and a half years, we know that he makes a covenant 
a false covenant with the nation of Israel. And he lulls them to sleep and, you know, tells them what they want to hear. But all the time he's got an agenda that he's drawing them in so he obviously can wipe them out. And uh, then at the second half of the tribulation period, he turns on the nation of Israel. He calls all of his 200 million men who are part of the worldwide organization of the Antichrist to come down and destroy Jerusalem. And so he comes down to Jerusalem to wipe them out. When they see him coming, the Bible says, they, I'm going to show you in a minute, they flee Jerusalem and they run into the wilderness. And this is where God sustains them in the wilderness while the Antichrist tries to hunt them down. And uh, when you look at this passage here, the thing I want you to know that the doctrinally, the rooftop here, is a literal rooftop. It's a literal top of a house, the rooftop. The brawling woman will be the Antichrist religion or Babylon mystery, the mother of harlots. So when it says it is better to dwell in a corner of a housetop than, uh, uh, than with a brawling woman in a, in, a, in a wide house, he's talking about somebody actually being up on a housetop and a brawling woman coming their way. Now, in Revelation chapter 17, 9, uh, this woman, the Roman, the, uh, the Antichrist religion, Babylon mystery religion, the Bible says that she is a, she's from Rome. And Rome is built on seven mountains. And so the Bible says in Revelation chapter 17, verse 9, that this woman uh, is a woman who sits on these seven mountains. So she's a big woman. <laughs> sits on seven mountains. Anyway. So what happens is this. And this is what you have. Everybody's down in Jerusalem for three and a half years and everything is fine. At the middle of the tribulation period, the Antichrist now decides to unfold his plan. He gathers all of his armies and they start to come down on Jerusalem. The word spreads that armies are moving our way. And the people actually go up on the rooftops to get a better look at the Antichrist or what's coming their way. All the Jews go up on the housetops to get a better view and a look at what's coming. And then once they see that, they get out of town and they flee. Now you say, oh, come on. Okay, come on. Let's go over to Jeremiah, Isaiah, excuse me, Isaiah chapter 22. Nothing like a little Bible to clear up your seminary education. Isaiah chapter 22, verses 1 through 5. Isaiah chapter 22. Now, you want to get these verses in the Proverbs here, and then you want to get them back and forth don't, so you have it. He says in Isaiah chapter 22, <clears throat> verses 1 through 5, he says, starting in verse 1, The burden of the valley of vision. What aileth thee now that thou art holy gone up to the housetop? There it is. See? Somebody went up to the house. He says, what's wrong with you? What's ailing you that now you're up on the housetop? Thou art full of stirs, tumultuous city, a joyous city. Thy slain men are not slain with a sword, nor dead in battle. All the rulers are fled together. They are bound by the archers. All that are found uh, in thee are bound together, which have fled from far. Therefore said I, look away from me. I will weep bitterly. Labor not to comfort me because of the spoiling of the daughter of my people. Now look at the context, verse 5. For it is a day of trouble, tribulation period. 
So here's a tribulation period where somebody in the midst of all this turbulent time is up on the housetop. Now along with that, you want to add Mark chapter 13, verse 15. You want to add also Luke chapter 17, verse 31. Those are two New Testament passages where somebody's up on the housetop. And uh, now here's what happens. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 tells us that that the Antichrist, as I've already said, he makes a false peace the first three and a half years. Then he turns on them and he comes down to destroy Jerusalem. This will be the abominations of desolation that talked about in Daniel and talked about in, uh, in Matthew. And uh, he calls up his armies to trap the Jews down in Jerusalem. They hear of his coming and they go up on the housetops to see him actually coming down. Now let me show you what happens. Turn over to Matthew chapter 24. Now if you don't have this marked in your Bible, Matthew chapter 24 verses 1 through 27 is the definitive passage in the Bible on the tribulation period. It puts all the pieces together for you. Actually the whole chapter, but we'll just read, uh, we'll just read uh, up to 27 today. 24.1. And Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came to him for to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said unto them, See ye not all these things? Verily I say unto you, There shall not be one left here stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. And as they sat upon the Mount of Olives, the disciples uh, come unto him privately, saying, Tell us, when shall these things be, and what shall be the sign of thy coming into the end of the world? Now I want to stop verse 3. If you don't have your notes down on verse 3, <coughs> let me give them to you. First of all, the first key that you would give you this to give you the context of the chapter is this little conversation that takes place on the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives will be the exact spot of the second coming of Christ. That's where he comes back. They ask him two questions, and I want you to see these two questions for the very important. The first question is, what shall be the sign of thy coming? And the second question is, and the end of the world. They're asking two questions. Now, what happens through the rest of this chapter we're going to stop at 27, but actually the rest of this chapter, you see, answers those two questions. And this is why Matthew chapter 24, verses 1 through the end of the chapter, is the greatest definitive chapter on the tribulation. There's more information here that will spar out to other places, but this is your central spot. I'll finish reading it now. And Jesus answered and said unto them, Take heed that no man deceive you. For many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many. Okay? He's talking about the Antichrist there. Okay? Doctrinally. And you shall hear of wars and rumors of wars, and see that be not troubled, for all these things must come to pass. But the end, now you want to, if you have your little yellow pencil there, you want to mark the word end in yellow. That's the end of the tribulation. We, we know that. For nation shall rise up against nation, kingdom against kingdom, and there shall be famines and pestilence and earthquakes in divers places, and all these things are the beginning of sorrows. I heard a guy one time, and this shows you, I'll just throw this in here to show you how people don't get the Bible together. There was a preacher here, and I've, I've heard a lot over the years, that wanted to prove that we were coming close to the second coming of Christ. So he went back to recorded time uh, when he started recording earthquakes and used it on that verse there, that through the history there have been more earthquakes every year uh, and coming in that is proof that we're getting close to the second coming of Christ because the verse says there there shall be earthquakes. And of course what the guy didn't understand that it doesn't, you don't need to know 
how quickly the earthquakes come in the last 200 years. That verse there is talking about earthquakes in the tribulation period. It's not talking about earthquakes in the church age. It's talking about earthquakes in the tribulation period. And of course, uh, uh, it, the guy didn't know his Bible very well because uh, it isn't a, a more frequency of earthquakes that proves the coming of the Lord. If you read on in Matthew chapter 24, you'll get exactly what you need to look at that shows you how close we are to the seventh Lord. It isn't an earthquake. But it says in verse 7, For nation shall rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. For there shall be famines and pestilence, earthquakes and divers places. All these are the beginning of sorrow. That's not taking place in the church age. That's taking place in the tribulation period, as you're going to see here in just a minute, if you read your Bible. Then shall they deliver you up to be afflicted, and they shall kill you, and you shall be hated for all nations by my name's sake. You see, this is to the Jew. This is even to the church. And then many, uh, and 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 then uh, shall many be offended, and shall betray one another, and they shall hate one another. And many false prophets shall rise and deceive many. And because iniquity of abound, and love of many shall wax cold. Now here it comes, verse thirteen. Mark this in your Bible in yellow, gold, red, purple, every color you got, because it's a key verse. But he that shall endure unto the end, the same shall be saved. Now see, that has nothing to do with the church age. That has to do with somebody not trusting Christ as their own personal Savior. Somebody in the tribulation that if they want to get saved, they've got to endure to the end. And if that wasn't enough, look at the next verse. And for the gospel of the kingdom shall be preached. We're not preaching the gospel of the kingdom here today. We're preaching the gospel of the kingdom of the great, a gospel of the grace of God, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're not preaching the gospel of the kingdom. That's a tribulation gospel preached to the nation of Israel. And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached unto all the world for a witness unto all nations. And then shall, here it comes again, mark it in yellow, the end. The end what? Second coming of Christ, the end of the tribulation. Now watch it very carefully. Here it comes. When ye therefore shall see the abomination of desolation, that's when the Antichrist, that's when the Antichrist comes into everything that he, this is the middle of the tribulation period. When ye therefore see the abomination of desolation spoken by Daniel the prophet, that's Daniel chapter 9, verse 27, stand in a holy place, whoso read let understand. Now here it comes, verse 16. Then let them which be in Judea flee into the mountains. Here it comes. Let him which is on the housetop. See that thing? Not come down to take anything out of his house. Neither let him which is in the field return back to take his clothes. And woe unto them that are with child that give suck in those days. But pray that your flight be not in winter, neither on the Sabbath day. Here it comes. Context. Verse 21. For then shall be great tribulation. See? Nothing to do with the church age. Nothing to do with you and me. This is a passage dealing with the Jew in the tribulation based on the Jews asking a question, two questions to the Lord about His coming. Not a thing about the church age. And of course, uh, look at verse 27 to save some time this morning. For as the lightning cometh out of the east and standeth even unto the west, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. That's not the rapture, that's the second coming of Christ. And that's what you have here. The passage speaks for itself. Verses 1 through 3, he's on the Mount of Olives, that's the second coming. What shall be the sign of thy coming end of the world? The two questions the Jews asked. Verse 13 and 14, they got to endure the gospel of the kingdom. Verse 15, the abomination of desolations. And then verse 17, if you're on the housetop, like Proverbs says, seeing and come down, don't stop, get down, get out of Dodge. Simply saying, he's saying this, when he comes, don't get cornered. Don't get trapped. Now look at the next verse. 
Verse 10. The soul of the wicked desireth evil. His neighbor findeth no favor in his eyes. Now, let's talk about the inspirational application first here. Inspirationally, that's any wicked, unsaved man. Uh, note the connection to the soul there. That will take advantage of his neighbor. Doctrinally, going back to the doctrinally, it's the Antichrist who, doesn't, who, who does evil uh, to the people of God in the tribulation period. You see, at the three-and-a-half-year mark, Israel finds no favor. She's been deceived, Matthew 24, 4. She's had a fake covenant. And uh, he, they were told in verse 4 of Matthew 24, let no man deceive him. But they get deceived. So what you have here is the soul of the wicked desireth evil. That's the Antichrist. He desired to do evil against the people of God. And he find his neighbor, that's the Jews, finds no favor. He's going to wipe them out. Now, let me hold up there doctrinally. I want to show you something inspirationally. I want to show you something here. Now, don't miss the context here between the two kinds of people dealing with their souls. And this is, goes back to the exactness of the Bible. Verse 10 talks about the soul of the wicked desires evil. Now that'll be an unsaved man. An unsaved man will be unregenerate in his soul. We know from Colossians chapter 2 verse 11 that a spiritual operation of God made without hands takes place that when you get saved, spiritual circumstance. We know that. And it takes place with your soul and your flesh. But here's a man who hasn't had that operation and his soul was still stuck to his flesh and he's a sinner. And because he's a sinner, a sinner, an unsaved man or woman will only desire to, listen to me, an unsaved man or woman will only desire to do evil. And that's what they do. Now, a saved man or woman, they're saved. Colossians chapter 2 says, When you got saved, God separated your soul from your flesh, made you a new creature in Christ Jesus. Now you're saved, now you're separated from the world, and now you're sealed by the Holy Spirit of God. Now, here it comes. Here it comes. I want you to see this. Here it comes. You do with it whatever you want. Here it comes. As a desire of an unsaved man is only to do evil. The desire of a born-again child of God should only to do right. Now, I need to say something here, and I won't get off the message here, but I want to say something very important. Now, I know we all sin. Gary and I were kidding about this morning about the pond there, and he wanted to do a little thing that we opened the ceremonies that I'd wear a white robe, and they'd and him and Steve would build a little platform right about two inches under the water, and I'd come out and walk on the water all the way across the thing there and get it going. That won't work. I got to tell you, there was a time years ago, I don't know if you guys remember this, that I used to do all the baptizing in the former church years ago that I was with, and I was, I was crazy. I, you know, I would come out there, and, know, and the choir was, the baptism was up here, and the choir was all down here. They were the, they looked, they were the stiffest people you ever met in your life. It's like they were baptized in dill pickle juice. They were just, they were the most self-righteous people. And I'd come down, and they'd all be sitting there, you know, so holy and godly. And I'd, before the kids, people come down, I'd throw all water out on the choir, sitting out in front down there. And they would, oh, 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 you know, just going crazy. <laughs> one time, one time, they were doing some construction up there. And, I, and so, in the baptism had steps going down in it on both sides, you know. I'd come down this side, they'd come down that side, we'd baptize them. But there was, 
lumber up there, and there was a big, long two-by-section. And I put that two-by-section on the top two steps. They couldn't see it. And I had this white robe on. And I want you to know, in a white robe, I look heavenly. I want you to know that. <laughs> and, I, and so they're down there on the organs playing, you know, and everybody's waiting for the baptism, you know, and this like that. And I come walking right out of the thing going. <laughs> place went crazy, man. I mean, I thought the pastor was going to die. It was absolutely the funniest thing I ever did in my life. I'm not sure whether it has anything to do with what I'm talking about here. But anyway. A saved man. A saved man's desire is to only do what's right. The Bible says once you get saved, you're a new creature in Christ Jesus. And I need to say something that I think is very important. I know we all sin. I know that. But I'm telling you, when you get into ministry and you start dealing with people who claim they are saved, and I make no judgment on whether a person is saved or not. I really don't. I'm, I'm not somebody up here that says, oh, I think he's saved or I think they're lost. You know what? I, I, but I'm telling you. We want to talk about Bible principles. Okay, let's talk about Bible principles. The Bible principle is if you're a saved person here, your desire should be different than the world's. You know the biggest thing that changed about us, every one of us, the day we got saved or should have changed was our desire. And I see God's people today that have no desire for the things of God. They go to church every Sunday. They got the right Bible. But in their own life, there is absolutely no evidence of a desire. I mean anything and everything will take precedent over what God wants to do. And I'm telling you, you'll find in ministry some people who just have no desire for the things of God, and yet they claim to be saved. And I'm telling you, when you got saved, the number one thing that changed about you and me was our desire. Now, I'm not saying you don't do things that are wrong. I'm saying you don't saying you don't sin. We all do. But I want to tell you something. How a saved person lives a life of consistency without a desire to do anything for God and never doing it, I don't get it. Nothing changes. Nothing changes in their desire. You never see one thing of God in their life. They never get in one aspect of ministry. They never do nothing with anybody in the Bible. Yet they're at church all the time. And yet... If, if, a, if the first thing that comes down the road that is more important to them than church, they're gone, boy. They're there, no matter what it may be. Hey, that Bible says in 1 Corinthians 8, 3, that if any man love God, the shame is known of him. When you're truly saved and you truly love God, there's a difference in our lives. We're not perfect. We still do stupid things. I do stupid things every day of my life, and so do you. But I want to tell you, my desire is the things of God in that book. And that's what changed about you the day you got saved. That's why some of you, like Caleb and Sarah, moved down here from, from Lincoln. That's why you came over here from Burlington, Iowa. That's why Craig and them moved here from Washington. And I talked to Craig this last week, and he's doing great up there. And uh, he's, they're, they're staying in the book and uh, had a good talk with him. That's why people move from across the country. That's why people on the website are, are getting in every week and getting into the Bible study. They have a desire. The desire is real. I'm going to tell you something. If you have a desire that is strong enough that you're going to move and leave your family and come down here, or you're going to move across the country and leave your kids, you got a desire. We got little... Guy, I don't think he's here today, a little blind guy, went to camp. Jeffrey. 
legally blind, has a white cane. My guys pick him up and bring him to church. Every time we're in restart, he's out on the street. Blind, can't see, has to have somebody help him over the curbs. You know what he's got that God's people don't have? He's got a desire. And that's the first thing that changed about us when we got saved. That was a desire. And I've seen some of God's people, that they claim to be saved. There's no change in their desire. They still desire the things of the world. They were out drinking last night. <clears throat> they were doing all the things that the world does all week long. They, they go out with their friends at work. They drink all night and they come home and they think nothing wrong with it. You know what? There's nothing. I'll tell you what's wrong. You better look deep inside. Your desire is not where it needs to be. Old things are passed away. All things become new. Get it? If it didn't, why not? I'll be honest. I, I have people that work with people in the ministry. Probably every week or every other week, they'll call me on the phone and say, Hey, I'm, what's the deal on so-and-so? And I'll say, well, you know, this is the deal. Da, 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 as I know it. And, you know, we're just trying to help as best we can. And the question obviously comes up. You think they're really saved? Because that's where we got to start. We're going through discipleship, and boy, I mean, they're just not interested in it. I mean, they're going through discipleship, and they just sit there. I mean, they go to this week get over here to go to discipleship. They don't even show up. Oh, I forgot. I had a ball game I had to go to. I mean, there's no desire for anything. And they'll say, do you think she's really saved? I said, you know what? I don't know. I don't know. I said, I'll tell you this. Do the best you can with them. Give them the Word of God and let the Holy Spirit of God try to do with it. But honestly, I'm going to be very honest with you. I'm going to be very honest with you. There's a lot of people I worry about. I really do. Hey, I know the day and age that we live in. I know the, how easy salvation is. I know that you can make a profession for Christ in just about any church. I know that all my life I've seen people come down on invitation. This is why I don't give an invitation here. I've had pastors say, well, why don't you, give, you're not really very biblical if you don't give an invitation every week. I said, show me in the Bible where they gave an invitation every week. I had a guy say one time, he says, well, you know what, you're not a real biblical church. You don't have Wednesday night church service. I said, show me Wednesday night church service in the Bible. I said, we have a Thursday night church service. And I said, do we get more done on Thursday than you'll ever do in your podunk church on Wednesday? Probably in a month of Wednesdays. I get people call me. Well, we're looking for a church and we saw you in here. What time is your Sunday night service? We don't have a Sunday night service. We're apostates. Because every Baptist church in the world has a Sunday night service. Why? have no idea. Nobody goes to it. The pastor is barely good on Sunday morning. You think he's going to get two good sermons out on the same day? Really? And then if they have Wednesday night service, you're really going to lose out. He has three he's got to put together. So they show films. You know, missionaries, and I don't mean this in a bad way because they're a different culture and a different mindset, but missionaries traditionally are very bad preachers. They're just not. That's not what it, they're designed multicultural. That's not a criticism. They're just not. I've never heard, I've heard, I've heard maybe one or two, three or four good, solid missionaries that could really take the paint off the wall, but most of them can't. And they'll always want to come through. 
They'll always want to come through, and the pastors are supporting them, so they have them have to preach, you know, and they have to come through. You know, when they, every pastor, he'll never put a missionary, unless he's really a fireball and really good, he'll never put a missionary on Sunday morning or Sunday night. You don't want to stick him? He'll stick him on Wednesday night. You know why? And I've heard pastors say this. Well, having preached Wednesday night, why is that? Because nobody comes on Wednesday night anyhow. That's the way you look at it. That's the way to look at it. And I'm telling you. Uh, the th- number one thing that changed about you and me when you got saved was our desire. Our desire to do right. The world has a desire. Unsaved people has a desire to do wrong. And, and, and I don't understand it. And I, I'll be honest. I look at that and I've told you, I think that the day and age that we live in, where the salvation is so easy and salvation is so meaningless, and there's no truth to begin with, I really worry about a lot of people who say they're saved and, and, uh, and maybe they're not. Because I want to tell you something, and I'm not saying this to scare you any way, shape, or form, because I think for the bulk of you, you're probably saved. But I want to say this to you, and I'm just preaching to you now on this verse. I'm just telling you. I'm telling you my fears. You want to know what, my, what scares me? I'm going to tell you what scares me. Besides the walking dead, this is what scares me. I know the day and age that we live in, and the salvation is cheap. All my life, I've seen people come down and get saved on a Sunday night or a Wednesday night or a Sunday morning. And they praise the Lord, and everybody slaps them on the back, and three weeks later, they're right back into the world again. Now, you explain to me how that happens if 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 is true. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things have passed away, all things become new. You explain to me how that happens if, if, if their desire really changed. Though I'm a rascal, and I'm worthless, and I, God had to go out and run me over with a big cement truck. I get that. But I want to tell you something. When I got saved, my desire changed. I'm done with the world, man. Some of you just can't seem to let it go. I'm done with it. I'm done with it. Somebody said, hey, you want to go out drinking tonight? No, because I didn't want to go out drinking before I got saved, so I don't want to go, no. (laughs) Hey, you want to go get high and smoke this? No, no, I'm high on Jesus. (laughs) You know, high, high on Jesus. Well, the Bible says Jesus was high on a mountain, so I'm hanging out with him. See, I didn't, a lot of people today in the world have an addiction. And addiction doesn't mean a bad thing. I mean, you could be addicted to crack cocaine, you'd be addicted to alcohol, you'd be addicted to cigarettes, you'd be addicted to a lot of things. You'd be addicted to your boat down at the lake on Sunday. You'd be addicted to your bowling league on Wednesday night. You could be addicted to your fishing trip. You'd be addicted to your deer hunting stand. You could be addicted to a lot of things. But when I got saved, I didn't, I, didn't, I didn't stop an addiction. I just changed addiction. I'm like the guys over there in the book of Corinthians. I just got addicted to the ministry. That's my addiction. You know why? My desire changed. Do you really enjoy being with the world? Do you really enjoy being with foul-mouthed, filthy-mouthed people that just talk about and use God's name? Do you really enjoy that? Is that fun for you to hang out down there in a bar someplace where everybody, you know, is, is, is talking about this and taking the Lord's name in vain and doing that and doing this and doing that and you're a child of God? And, you know, you know I, I, I just, you, uh, buddy, uh, no, the guy that played the piano, Rex Harrison. Rex Harrison's dead now, but he was one of the greatest piano players you ever heard in your life. And boy, could he sing. He'd sit up there, he had... He had cerebral palsy. He was from a kid. He was on crutches. But boy, when he sat in that piano, boy, his favorite song, Some Golden Daybreak, boy. He'd play that piano. He'd just sing. He'd go from song to song and, and blend them all together. And it was unbelievable. And he was a good preacher, too. 
He grew up playing in nightclubs. And he was saved. He got saved as a boy. And he said, I was miserable. And he said, I was, I, I was, I was playing at a nightclub someplace down in New Orleans, and I was playing down there, and I was playing the blues. And I was down there, and I was under such conviction, and I was playing the blues, you know, and I just, and a woman came up to me, and she put her hand on the piano, and she says, that's a very sad song. You look like a very sad guy. And she looked up, and she says, you must be a Christian. <laughs> and he said, that did it for me, because I was a Christian. It's that verse over there in Psalm. It's hard to sing one of the songs of Zion in a strange land. And it's hard to have a desire for the things of God when you're living in Babylon. And I worry about things like that. I really do. I'd say to somebody, man, that's a tough one. I, I don't know. I, I, I don't know, man. Hey, are there... there uh, I've seen him where there's absolutely nothing, zero desire for the things of God. I mean nothing. I mean, they talk about it, they come to church, but there's just no desire change. I mean, they stand around and talk about everything else, but there's nothing in the Bible that they talk about. And no matter what they say or do, God always will take a back seat in anything when it comes to their real desires. So those things are absolutely vital. That when you got saved and I got saved, the number one thing that changed about it is our desire. I, I know we're sinners. I know we do dumb things. I know we get out of fellowship. I get it. But the difference between you and us who have a desire versus to someone who doesn't, that when we sin, we hate ourselves for it. Amen. When you do something stupid, you know it's wrong. And it may take you a day or two or a week or even a month to get through it, but you know you're miserable inside and you're not a day that goes by that the Holy Spirit of God doesn't nail you. Right. It's the ones that claim to be saved that go through their whole life and never do anything and there's no chastisement or no burden in their life and no God did And to them, they're like that woman in Proverbs. She just does her sin, wipes her mouth and says, I've done no wrong. That scares me. That scares me. Look at verse 11. I know, we're going to move on now. You can breathe easy. When a scorner is punished, the simple is made wise. This is a good one. And when the wise is instructed, he receiveth knowledge. Now, this is a really good principle for, for all of us to follow. It really is. Uh, we, we learn, obviously, as I've talked about many, many times, we learn from our own mistakes, or at least we should. But also, we, we need to learn and take uh, instruction or receive knowledge when others are punished and go through some tough times. And how many times have I looked at something, and I know many of you have too, and you see a terrible, terrible, terrible situation. Terrible situation. And instead of getting all prideful and judgmental about that, uh, because your desire's right, you just look inside yourself and you say, oh, but by the grace of God, there go I. Because it's so easy, it could be. My advice to you, if I may give you advice, my advice to you is to learn and learn and learn everything you can from everyone you can, Amen. good and bad. My ministry, success or failure of it, was based on studying the lives of two preachers. One of them taught me how to build a church right. The other one taught me how to build it wrong. I learned from both. Now, doctrinally, going back here, 
this is the second coming and God dealing with the man of sin and people learning from it. Because he fooled everybody. But once you get into the millennium, now they all understand. And of course you'll see this in the great chapter in Zechariah chapter 14. Inspirationally, it's the punishment of the wrongdoers in our lives for the example for us to do right. There's a great, because of where our society is and how lack we are outside the Word of God, there's a great outcry today against the, uh, the capital punishment. Uh, people think that it's inhumane and, you know, the murderer, murderer makes you a murderer. And, of course, uh, uh, that's where our society is. Uh, nobody much understands anymore that uh, capital punishment is something that God established all the way back in Genesis chapter 9 when he said, if you shed man's blood, by man shall your blood be shed. He laid it out in great detail in Numbers chapter 35, in particular verse 9, that if a man is a murderer, you take no, you take no sympathy for that. You, 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 he, he pays, he forfeits his life. Now back in the day, they understood this. That's why in the 1800s and actually up, in, actually up into the middle, maybe the 1930s, um, in some places, they, they had public executions. They hung the guy on the square. Everybody got to come and watch. And they did that, and I know today that, you know, I, I just, it, it, people say, well, that is just so terrible. Oh, give me a break. You know what? On one, on one day on your television set, you'll watch 68 murders, 475 rapes, three old people got bludgered with a car, <laughs> it, 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 on and on and on, and you're worried about a guy being hung in the square. But they understood something that we've lost today. They realized that that was a deterrent. See, you want to shield your kid from that. Oh, I, my little, don't, don't look at that. Don't, no, no, look at it. Oh, no, 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 don't, don't even look at that. I don't want him to be warped. No, you want him to turn up to be a murderer. Yeah, you know what? For me standing there watching some guy up there, and they say, you have any last words to say? And he says, yes, I'm sorry. Please spare my life. I don't want to die. Da-da-da-da-da-da, please. Uh, you know, I'm sorry. I'm sorry I killed this person. I'm sorry I did this. I'm sorry I hacked off their legs. I'm sorry I cut their heads off. I'm sorry I burned them alive. Please give me sympathy. Give me mercy. And about that time, the old rope goes down and <laughs> cracks his neck, and that kid's standing there going, you know what that kid's thinking? I don't want that to happen to me. I don't want to wind up on that gallows. I saw a guy electrocuted one time. I, I, of all the forms of capital punishment, I think the electric chair scares me the most. I'm glad they did away with it because now I could kill somebody and just be on death row all my life and live like a king, get cable TV. Being in an electric chair scared me to death. I actually saw a guy electrocuted one time. It was incredible. Not, not for him, but I mean, it was, an, it, was an, it, was, it was a yeah, it was scary, man. I mean, they put this sponge on your head, you know, with water, so the electricity goes through your whole body. They, they, they make jokes about it. The electric chair, they call it old Sparky. And they put you in there to strap your arms down and strap there to shave a thing on the top of your head. And they put a metal thing so it'll walk in and they put a wet sponge on top of that and put it down so the electricity goes all the way through your body. And I mean, I tell you what, have you ever been shocked yourself? I mean, just think about that and magnify it all through your body. 
and you're standing there and you know what's going to come and you're waiting and you put a blindfold over your head and that really is scary because now you know any second and you're worried about, you talk, you're worried about when it's going to happen and you're trying to listen and you're saying, oh my God, it's going to happen any second and you've got the water and you know you're going to, and all that guy throws that switch, boy, and all those bolts come through your body. I've seen where they had to stop it, start it, stop and start it because the guy was still alive. They had to electrocute him four or five times. I mean, I've, they, they've come to the place where, it, and, 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 and they're public. You can go to them and watch them if that's your desire. And they, boy, they throw that switch, man, and he's frying there, and the smell of burning flesh, all the stuff that's coming out of his mouth, his eyes, he's shaking everywhere, and they stop it. The doctor comes over and listens to his heart. And he goes, he's still alive. They hit him again. Another 10, 15, 60 seconds. Stop it. He comes over. Still alive. Hit him again. That's tough, man. I'm glad he did away with it. The gas chamber was a little better because they push you in there and it turned out a little cyanide, kick the caps over, and if you really want to be done quick, you just, and you're gone. Now we have lethal injection. Now we worry about this guy raped 28 women. He violated I don't know how many kids. He killed I don't know how many people. He's a, he's a rank pedophile murderer, and we put him now to capital punishment, and we're going to put him to death, lethal injection. But we're not going to do it because it might hurt. That's where we're at today. You know what? It's supposed to hurt. You kill all those people and do all the things, and now we, wanna, we, wanna, we, we don't want to be cruel to you. Really? That's the society we live in. And we've lo- you know why crime is so rampant? I'm going to tell you something. They're out there. You go in parts of this town or St. Louis or Chicago or any place. There were people out there that will kill you without even thinking about it. They will kill you for your gym shoes. That's why I always wear my old ones when I go downtown. They will kill you for whatever you got on. You got a nice watch. They'll kill you for that. They got to be in a gang, and a gang says to be one of us, you got to kill somebody. They'll just kill you for the fact that that's their initiation. There is no understanding or appreciation for life in a society we live in. You know why? Nothing's going to happen to them. You'll go on death row there for 20 years. How you'll get cable TV, you'll get three meals a day, get an hour wreck every day. Yeah, you just sit there, watch television all day long. One year goes by, 20 years goes by, and now your execution is going to come, and there'll be all kinds of protesters out there. Don't kill this guy. Don't kill this guy. And the governor will probably be saying, no, nah, we're not going to kill him. Got it made. I'll tell you what, if they brought back public execution, based on the verse, if they brought back public execution that you had to watch somebody die screaming and going out because they did wrong, your kids would think twice about what they did wrong. Well, I, I, I do, and i never really seen one. But I, 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 I've, I've seen those pictures and seen those things. Boy, I'll tell you what, uh, if you ever want a good appreciation of what it must be like, just watch the Green Mile. Not me, boy. My advice to you is to learn, learn, learn from everything you can. Punishment is a deterrent. Little kids see those things, they grow up knowing that there is a, there's a price if you disobey. Amen. 
It's a deterrent because, as the verse says, we receive knowledge and instruction and we're made wise. This is why in dealing with your kids, corporal punishment is so important. And I know there's parents that don't believe in whipping their kids. That's your business. That's okay. I'll just tell you this. You don't whip him when he's four, five, and six. He'll be whipping you when he's 18, 19, and 20. I had a guy one time years ago, he, his kid was just terrible. And his kid would beat him up. His kid was bigger than he was and beat him up, beat his mother up. And I, and he said, I said, what are you going to do? He says, the kid's out of control. And he says, he walked out there and he had a bell bat. And he said, the kid's got to sleep sometime tonight. <laughs> a little late for that. You see, discipline with children is a learned behavior, just like anything else. And you use not only their situation, but other kids' situations. You see some kid out there that, that gets into trouble, and you don't be judgmental about it, but you use it with your kid and says, I'm not going to allow you to be like that. I'm not going to allow you to be, be part of something like that. I, I, I'm not, I'm not going to allow you to get into those kind of things. And when they disobey, you give them instruction and knowledge through a biblical form of discipline. When you have multiple kids, the other kids, the younger ones, will see you deal with the older ones, and they'll, the verse will become apropos. It'll fit right into the, they'll see through the mistakes of the other, the punishment involved, and they'll take knowledge of it. They will see your structure of dealing with them, and it will take knowledge that there's no profit in our disobedience. Every parent should remember one key phrase when it comes to training up your children. It's two words, brick wall, brick wall. Your kids, when it comes to right and wrong, realize that mom and dad are together and it's a brick wall and there's nowhere to go. The brick wall concept will be based on one other word and that is consistency. Inconsistency will destroy any family, destroy any kids. It's a brick wall consistency. They're up against it. Parenting is simple. I mean, it really is. You mold your kids through discipline or they'll mold you through their undiscipline. And for you and me, it's a safe concept. I, I've said many, many times over the years, I've said it lots of times, and I thank God every day that both of my girls are married good husbands and they're in the ministry with me and right by my side, and I thank God for it every day of my life, and I feel like I'm the luckiest man on the planet. But I've often said to myself that I, if my kids ever went to the world and ever lost them and ever uh, went back to the world and just never did what was right and, and, uh, and weren't involved in ministry, uh, I'd have nobody to blame but myself. You know why? Because over the last 40-some years in ministry, I've seen every mistake every parent ever made. I have no excuse. I know why parents, their kids get to be teenagers and they lose them. I've seen it all my ministry. I know why they get... Kids get to be eight or nine years old and they start to give parents problems and parents don't understand it. I've watched parents raise two or three kids that were really good and then a fourth one comes along and he's the Antichrist or she's the Antichrist. I understand why. They don't. I do. Hey, I've seen every mistake every parent ever made. And I stand before you this morning. I have no excuse if my kids didn't turn out the way they should have turned out. I'd have, I'd have been guilty, buddy. I had absolutely no excuse. Punishment is a good deterrent. You go to Walmart and you use the restrooms in there, there'll be signs all over the place. Shoplifting is a serious crime. You may think it's fun, but you'll carry a record the rest of your life. You know what that is? That's meant to be a deterrent. 
This principle is reinforced in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 10, a book that we can all apply to Proverbs chapter 21, verse 11. A church with multiple issues that are struggling all through it. And he says in, in, chapter, in chapter 10, verse 1, he says, Moreover, brethren, I would ye should be not ignorant how all of our fathers were under the cloud and all passed uh, through the sea. He says uh, they, uh, they, uh, that all did drink the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. But with many of them, God was not well pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now look at verse 6. Now these things were for our examples. To the intent we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. Neither be idolaters as some of them, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Neither let us commit fornication as some of them committed and fell one day, uh, three and twenty thousand. Neither let us tempt Christ, as some of them also tempted and were destroyed of the serpents. Neither murmur ye, as some of them also murmured and were destroyed of the destroyer. Now look at verse 11. Now all these things happen unto them for in samples, and they are written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world come. Wherefore let him think he standeth, take heed lest he fall. He says those things are written for us. Examples. That's something you do. And in sample, that's something you are. Admonition, that's a strong rebuke. And he says, this is for us upon who in the ends of the world come. That's us. Because there's profit. There's profit in punishment. It's a deterrent. Now this is, as I said, these are five really good principles. Doctrinally, and then a practical material. The way of man is forward and strange. But for the pure, his work is right. There's some things that we do as God's people that God looks at and he says, that's the strangest thing I ever saw. Well, after I died for him, after I gave my life for him, and after I've worked everything in his life for them to go back to the world, I got to tell you, Gabriel, that is the strangest thing I ever saw in my life. Some things we do in front of God are strange to him because he expects our desire to be where it should be. It is better to dwell in a corner of a housetop than with a brawling woman in a wide house. And now we understand how that fits. The soul of the wicked desires evil. His neighbor findeth no favor in his eyes. We understand. When a scorner is punished, the simple is made wise. And when the wise is instructed, he receiveth knowledge. We understand that now. Five great principles of life that will help you understand God and all he's doing in your life. You, as a child of God, building a library of biblical principles for your own life. Second, for the lives of others who you're going to help. Biblical, biblical principles offer an absolute clear direction of life and how to deal uh, with the day-to-day uh, -day issues that we all have to face. How many times you and I are faced with a situation that you don't know what to do? How many times you look at something and you say, man, what do I do with this? And, of course, the answer is, what are the principles of the Word of God involved with it? That's all. You don't have to conjure up. You don't have to get a hold of somebody's grandma's homespun theology or fixing problems. Just figure out what the principles are. Hebrews chapter 5 says learning to bite biblical principles is like anything else that you ever do in your life. It requires diligence last week we talked about. It requires, it requires discipline. Hebrews 5.14 says, but strong meat, doctrine, strong Bible-believing, Belong it to them that are full of age. That's the plentifulness of last week. 
even those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. You develop your Christian life's principles. You develop the principles of your Christian life by one, learning them, two, using them. And what it does, it exercises your senses, strengthens you, develops you. You don't go into a gym on Monday and come out on Friday Hulk Hogan. Every day you build a little more. Every day you stretch those muscles a little differently. Every day, maybe one day you'll do legs, one day you'll do stomachs, one day you'll do the shoulders, one day you'll do arms or whatever you want to do. You have a process by which you totally strengthen your physical body one section at a time. That's what biblical principles do for your spiritual body. They strengthen you componently one section of your spiritual body at a time. You learn them, you apply them, you use them, it exercises your senses. And pretty soon, you can come to the place in any given situation and you hear it, you see it, and you can put the principles to it because you're learning and understanding through all these great five principles. Well, we'll hold up there. Next week, we'll be moving on in Proverbs again.